As I mentioned, we are privileged this morning to have uh, Reverend Dr. Carlton Wynn bring the word with us. He was here last year, as you might know. He's a dear friend from Westminster Seminary who teaches in the systematics department and the apologetics and wherever else they want him. Um, uh, you've been there how long, Carlton? Five years. Five years. Um, he's a Texan at heart, correct? Um, but we still love him up north. Um, <laughs> but he's a man of not only the word and teaching well in the seminary, but I can tell you he's a man of God who loves Jesus, knows that he needs him every day. And so we're, being, we're blessed by a man not only, not only of the word, but a man who is in the Lord seeking to honor him as well. So bring the word to us, brother. Good to have you here. What a joy it is to be with you again bring you greetings from Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Texas may not be the promised land, but it's close. <laughs> I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus 34. Exodus chapter 34, you'll find that on page 75. And then if you want to begin flipping to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you'll find that on page 965. And I'll be reading a portion of each of those chapters First, from Exodus chapter 34, beginning at verse 27. These words come to us as Moses has ascended Mount Sinai and is meeting with the Lord. Let's give our attention to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word written for you and for me this morning. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the word of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And now turning to page 965, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning at verse 12, where Paul is talking about the hope of his new covenant ministry. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, 
because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Would you bow with me as we ask the Lord's help as we consider his word? Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, which is able to make us wise for salvation through Christ our Lord. We thank you that it is breathed out by you and sufficient for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Would you open the eyes of our heart? Would you turn the eyes of faith to Christ in the heavens as we consider this word together? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, three years ago this month, the Pope, Pope Francis, did something unexpected. He acknowledged the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Unfortunately, he didn't say that Martin Luther was right. He did not say that the 95 Theses were sitting on his papal nightstand Sadly, he did not say that he was going to be tweeting John Calvin quotes to his 18 million followers, but he called the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, quote, an opportunity to mend a critical moment of our history and move beyond the controversies and disagreements of the past. As we sit here celebrating the legacy of the Protestant Reformation, I want to ask you, is the Protestant Reformation something to move beyond? Is it something to get over? You know that the Reformation marked the recovery of the gospel after centuries of medieval distortions. Its rallying cry took the form of five key solas, five alones. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Instead of turning to the Pope, the Reformer said, we must look to the Bible as the very Word of God and the highest authority in our lives. Sola gratia, grace alone. When we look to the Bible, we learn that sinners are reconciled to God by sheer grace, not by way of our own merit, as the Catholic system taught and still teaches. Solus Christus, Christ alone. God saves by sending Christ to be our substitute and our redeemer. By his life and death and resurrection, he has paid the debt for sin and earned eternal life, that life that we do not deserve. And how do we receive this gift from Christ? Well, faith alone, sola fide. We receive Christ not by works, as Rome held, but but through the simple act of faith. Faith that is a gift from God, a faith that rests in Christ as he is offered in the gospel. And all of this, sola Deo gloria, to the glory of God alone, all of salvation, its accomplishment, its application is from God and through God and to God, and therefore it is all to the praise and glory of God. Taking scripture alone, 
We learn that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. To move beyond the Reformation from this angle would be to move beyond that which we hold dear, to move beyond the recovery and preservation of the gospel of Christ. But there's another reason we can't move beyond the Reformation, and that is because the Reformation wasn't just a Reformation of doctrine, it was also a Reformation of worship. And the two are related. Biblical doctrine fuels biblical worship. Think about it for a moment. If, if Scripture alone and not the Pope is the supreme authority in the church, then the pulpit should become front and center in a worship service. It should be central, even elevated, to symbolize the centrality of the word and the preaching of the gospel. If salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, then, then we don't need to go through a human priest to earn merit before the Father. Rather, it's the Father who takes the initiative and sends His Son to be our mediator. Christ is our great high priest who reigns in heaven, whose righteousness covers us and justifies us before the Father. And if we receive salvation, not by works but through faith alone, then when the church gathers for worship, we gather not as mere spectators watching somebody up on a stage do religious rituals, even in a language we don't understand, as happened in the medieval era, but the whole church gathers to hear the word preached, to worship God as the family of God, to know personal, face-to-face fellowship with God through faith in Christ. These three features of Reformed worship are the very things that we need to preserve today. The centrality of the word, the necessity of a mediator, and the requirement of faith. These are things we cannot move beyond. These are things by which we know and worship God. And these are the very things, I think, that arise from our text in Exodus 34. You know the context. God has rescued Israel from bondage in slavery. He has brought them out with a mighty hand. He is leading them onward through the wilderness to the promised land under the headship of Moses. And he calls Moses up on Mount Sinai as Israel camps at the base of the mountain to meet with him. And why has God done this? Well, God wants to tell the people through Moses how they are to worship him. And the first thing we learn about the worship of God, that is worship that pleases God, is that it must center on the word of God. Note the repeated emphasis on God's words in our text in Exodus 34, verse 27. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. The latter part of verse 28. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And there may be a footnote in your ESV translation where it says Ten Commandments literally means the Ten Words. Verse 32, Moses commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. 
course, this is just a small snapshot of the words that God gave to Moses to deliver to Israel. He gave them many more words, words related to the civil laws that were to govern Israel's activity as a nation together, many ceremonial laws that related to tabernacle worship, the furnishings of the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and he gave him moral laws, moral laws summarized here in the Ten Commandments, and and this is what's in view in our passage. But as you think about the Ten Commandments, remember that the first four commandments deal explicitly with the worship of God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven image or bow down to it and worship it. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and you shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. These are the the boundaries within which the church is to run in freedom in the knowledge and worship of God. I would imagine if you asked a number of churches, how do you decide what you're going to do on Sunday morning? Fewer and fewer today would say, well, we look to the word of God to see how he has commanded us to worship him. Yet that's exactly what God is doing with Israel. He is instructing them, having redeemed them out of bondage, how they are to relate to him. They the creature, he the creator and the redeemer. The fact that God gives us words to govern and regulate our worship is not a bad thing. It's not even a constraining thing. I hope you know that it's actually a liberating thing. It's liberating for at least two reasons. Number one... When the word of God is received into the heart, it carries with it the very power of life. We see a picture of this in our text, don't we, in in verse 28. It says, so he, Moses, was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. So intense was Moses' experience with God at the top of Sinai that the word of God sustained him body and soul for 40 days. The word of God to the people of God is, is liberating for another reason. And that is that it is by his speaking that God establishes covenant fellowship with his people. Look at verse 27. It says, in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. In the Hebrew text, it literally reads, by the mouth of these words, I have made a covenant. Now, you and I are familiar with how speaking words can seal the bond of a covenant between people. At a traditional wedding ceremony, there inevitably comes a point when the minister says to the groom, turn and face your bride. I remember this clearly in my own experience. And I turn to my bride. And What happens when the bride and groom face one another? They speak words. They speak vows to one another. Vows that seal the bond of the covenant in marriage. This is what God is doing. He's in essence vowing to take his people as his own and and give himself to be their God. This is a wedding ceremony. 
Well, if it's a wedding ceremony, we can ask the question, where's the groom? Well, this isn't any wedding ceremony. It's the wedding ceremony between God and his people. And in this wedding ceremony, it's the groom who appears later at just the right time. Jesus Christ, of course, is the groom. Jesus Christ is the one who seals the bond of fellowship between God and his people. Jesus Christ is the one who is the very living word from the Father. Hebrews 1, the opening verses, say, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Uh, The prophets including Moses. But... In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has spoken definitively in history through the person of Jesus Christ in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Jesus Christ, the eternal word of the Father, becomes in the flesh, resurrected from the dead, the word that gives life to his people. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus, as the living word from the Father, is life-giving to his people, not for 40 days, not even for 40 years, but for eternity. And you can see that it's because the whole Bible testifies to this Christ. It's because the whole Bible speaks of him and anticipates him and reveals him that the church's worship must center on the Word of God. The Word of God is where we find Jesus Christ offered to us in the Gospel. This is why in worship we we read the Bible and we preach the Bible and we pray the Bible and we sing the Bible and we see the Bible in the sacraments before us. John Calvin said, we enjoy Christ only as we embrace Christ clad in his own promises, clothed in his gospel. Where do we see Christ clothed in his gospel? We see it in the promises of Scripture as we turn to the Word. I think this is a lesson for us. We who esteem the Scriptures, we need to remember that we don't worship the Bible. We worship Christ. But the attention and reverence that we give to the Bible is the attention and reverence that we give to Christ. How do we express our love for Christ? One of the key ways we do it is by attending to his word. And so I want to ask you this morning, how do you treat the Bible? Do you submit to it from start to finish? Or do you stand over it? Do you dismiss it? Do you take it under advisement? Or do you cherish it as the word of God? Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. 
He connected the word of God with himself as he is united to us. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So I ask you again, what do you think of the Bible? How do you treat it? What time do you spend with it? This is a barometer of sorts of our treatment of Christ, isn't it? But the Father comes to you in the Bible, and he says to you again and again, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Charles Spurgeon spoke of the Bible as his living companion. Listen to what he said. He said, the book weeps with me and sings with me. It whispers to me. It preaches to me. It maps my way and holds up my goings. It was to me the young man's best companion and is still my morning and evening chaplain. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, knew that it's through the word that he has living fellowship with Jesus Christ. Which brings us to the second thing we see in our text. True worship not only centers on the word, but true worship requires a mediator. Uh, This too is clear from the context of our Of our passage, God has chosen Moses to be his mediator. Now, we know that that a mediator is only needed when there's a conflict. Okay, I know this from parenting. Uh, Small children, you only need a mediator when there's a conflict. Well, what's the conflict in Exodus? It's a conflict that goes back long before the book of Exodus. It's a conflict that goes back to the fall of man into sin. It's a conflict between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of men. It's a conflict between the creator who speaks and the creature who rejects the word of God. Indeed, it's the word of God that exposes the conflict most clearly. If you would, turn back to Exodus chapter 20 where God first reveals himself when when he speaks the Ten Commandments the first time. God had descended in flaming fire and a sign of smoke and lightning at the top of the mountain, and he has spoken the words to all the nation. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, look at what it says. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. It's a terrifying thing to come into the presence of God without a mediator. It's terrifying not because God is evil, but because he's so good, because he's so pure, because he's so holy. You remember when the prophet Isaiah saw just a glimpse of the heavenly tabernacle of God and he sees the angelic host crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Remember what Isaiah says. He says, woe is me. I am undone. I am literally unraveled before the face of God. Why? Because I am a man of unclean lips. 
and I dwell among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In our text, what was so terrifying was, was, was not a vision of heaven, of God in his glory. It was not even a thundering word from the top of Sinai. What was so terrifying in our passage was Moses' face. Look at the end of verse 29. It tells us the reason why Moses' face was glowing. It said the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Reflecting off of the face of Moses is the afterglow of his fellowship with God. And as he comes down the mountain, Aaron, his own half-brother, and all the people of Israel, verse 30 says, were afraid to come near him. Why were they afraid? They were afraid because Moses' face was just a reflection of the holiness of God. And one glimpse at Moses' face took away all excuse for sinning, all excuse for turning away from the word of God. Ah, But Moses' face also revealed something else. It revealed that he was indeed God's appointed mediator. And as he comes down from the mountain, he comes down not to condemn the people as their judge, but he comes down to serve them as God's mediator. Notice verse 31, in a revelation of mercy, it says he called to them and they returned to him and he talked with them. What did he talk to them about? Well, he talked to them about the law of God. But we also know that this law is a law that points to Jesus Christ. Now listen again to Hebrews, this time Hebrews chapter 3. It says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Don't you see, friends? Moses was the worker. Jesus Christ was the architect all along. Moses was the servant. Jesus was the Savior. Moses was the shadow. Jesus was the Son, ready to shine in full glory. Moses comes down from the mountain to speak to the people, but Jesus comes down from heaven itself to save the people. Save a people, as Jerry said earlier, who wanted nothing more than to run from him. Indeed, wanted nothing more than to crucify him. Yet it was this very way that God was redeeming his people. And he redeems us one by one, doesn't he? We must each have Christ as our mediator. We must each call upon him as our mediator. We sang it earlier, didn't we? Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. This is why we worship. We worship at Third Reformed because Jesus interposed his precious blood. We're able to read the word of God without being undone like Isaiah because Jesus interposed his precious blood. All of the Father's love is 
poured out upon us through the mediator, Jesus Christ. And I heard it recently said, he pours out his love, not like a waiter pours and tops off your water glass. No, God the Father pours out his love upon you through the mediator like Niagara Falls in June. Pouring it out. True worship is centered on the word of God. True worship requires a mediator. And finally, true worship is by faith. We need to get this point because it does us no good to hear the word of God, even to be bound to God in covenant, to know that there is a mediator in Jesus Christ unless we receive him in his word by faith. The necessity of faith. This was the problem when Moses came down with the word of God. The people ran away in unbelief. And even when they returned, the unbelief remained. And we know this because, well, because Moses covers his face with a veil. Exodus 34 tells us of Moses' regular practice of unveiling his face when he talked with God, but then covering it when he comes down to talk to the people. Why did he do this? Well, here's where we need to turn over to chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians. If you would flip over to that chapter on page 965 and look at verse 13. 2 Corinthians 3.13. Moses put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What was being brought to an end? Well, the ministry of Moses was being brought to an end. The reflecting glory off of his countenance was being brought to an end. But here's the point. The Israelites could not even bear the glory of God under the temporary reflective ministry of Moses. So Moses veils his face in part as a sign of their unbelief. They listened to Moses, but they didn't look to the Christ to come. Notice Paul goes on, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Well, where's the solution? comes in the next verse, doesn't it? Verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Friends, faith comes from the same Christ in whom we must place our faith. Faith is not something that you, you have to just churn up within yourself. Faith itself is a gift of your Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit to you, and when he gifts you faith, you place that faith in the person of Jesus Christ as he is offered in the gospel. You might say, well, I, I, I love the word of God. I know Christ is the mediator, but my faith is weak. You need to know that it's not the strength of our faith that saves. It's the object of our faith that saves I've said it before here, Richard Sibbs says, a weak hand may receive a rich jewel. A weak hand may receive a rich jewel. It does not matter in this sense how weak your faith is, so long as that faith is tethered to the object who can save. 
Jesus Christ is the only sure object for our faith. Any faith that looks to something other than Christ is, is really no faith at all. But if you look to him in faith, if his word abides in you in covenant with God, Paul says that this mediator does something more. As you look at him, as he is revealed in the word, as you listen to him, he begins to make his own unfading glory reflect back to him from your own heart. As you behold his face, as you look to him as your mediator, he begins to transform you into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. This is a mediator who is not temporary like Moses, but is resurrected from the dead forever. He ever lives to make intercession for us, and consequently he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What does this mean? It means that because the glory of Christ will never fade, your increasing conformity to his image in glory will never end. Even beyond the grave, he will cause your body to arise and perfect your soul in such a way that you will be satisfied for eternity with his likeness. Friends, though many have moved on from the Reformation, I hope you see we can't move on from this. The mediator says, come to me, all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Friends, his word will never fail. His intercession will never end. Faith in him will never disappoint. This week, will you look to him? Will you look to his word? Will you trust in him? As this week faces you with all kinds of distractions competing for your attention, may you look to him and say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Indeed, he does. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the word of eternal life. Even Jesus Christ, crucified and raised. Would you receive praise once again as we sing to you and go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.